Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, Kenny and I are having fun being in the same place on a Sunday morning. I had a few people approach me before the first service and in between services to say, you and Kenny are both here. Are we in some sort of trouble? And I, I want to assure you that you are not in some sort of trouble. As a matter of fact, I would suggest the Prior Lake campus may be in trouble this morning because we have left it in the hands of Jason and Joel. And so we will see if that campus even exists after this morning. Oh, you guys, it's uh, exciting to be a part of worshiping Jesus together today. And we are doing so in this sermon series called Kingdom Logic. We're walking through Mark chapter 9 and 10, where there's one lesson after another about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And as we're walking through these lessons, we started with the, the most important lesson there is about the kingdom of God on week one. You remember what that lesson was up on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration? The most important lesson that there is about the kingdom of God is that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. That is the most important lesson. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. And because Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God, it is totally and completely different than the way of the world. And that's represented by the artwork that we've used for this series with one city upside down from another, there is a recognition that the kingdom of God led by King Jesus is totally and completely different than the way of the world. And that the way of the world is totally and completely different from the way of King Jesus. They're totally and completely different from one another. And we've been seeing that week after week, right? To see how King Jesus and his kingdom are different than the ways of the world around us. Now today, Jesus is going to teach us essential lessons about the kingdom of God using little kiddos and a wealthy young man, right? Little kiddos and a wealthy young man. And I want you to see these kingdom lessons with me. So if you would turn to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 31 today, Mark 10, 13 through 31. And let's start with the kingdom lessons that Jesus wants us to see as we look at little children. We read in verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. What's happening in this part of our passage? Parents are bringing their little kids to Jesus, and Jesus is blessing them. You probably picked up from the phrase, pick them up in his arms, that we are not talking about fourth graders here. These are little kids that Jesus is holding. As a matter of fact, Mark uses a term in the Greek for little child. And Luke, in the parallel passage, uses the word infants. These are infants and little toddlers that are being brought to Jesus. And he is taking them in his arms and he is pronouncing blessing over these children. And what are his disciples doing while he is blessing these children? The disciples are helping get the parents all lined up in a queue so that this can be efficient, right? No, that is not what they are doing. Are the disciples taking little children into their arms and blessing them in the name of Jesus? No, no that's not what they're doing. We're told that they are preventing Parents from bringing children to Jesus. I, we don't know how they did that. Maybe they were going around the crowd saying, he doesn't want to see your kid. 
Can you imagine that? If, if we had a child dedication here on a Sunday, uh, yeah, all, all the kids but yours, please. No, you, you can go. Maybe they were forming some sort of human blockade. We don't know. But they were trying to prevent these parents from bringing their children to Jesus. Why? Well, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, one of the things we saw is that in this culture, children were seen as less important than adults and certainly not worth the time of an important person. Within the Roman world and the Roman culture, infanticide was common among children of this age because they were considered less important than adults. Within the Jewish mind, children were seen as less important than adults and not worth the time of somebody who was an important figure within society. We saw in the Jewish writings the Mishnah. Two weeks ago, we read this quote, sleeping until midday, wine in the morning, and talking with children will destroy a man. Right? What is it that will destroy a man? Well, if you sleep till noon each day, if you're hitting the wine early in the morning, and if you dare to talk to kids, right? give up. You might as well give it up. Children were not seen as important enough to warrant the time of someone like Jesus. What did Jesus think about this mindset? Right? He completely disagrees with this mindset. And he rebukes his disciples for rebuking these parents that are trying to bring the children. And Jesus says, no, I want them to come to me. And he takes one infant after another and holds them in his arms. And he places his hand upon them. And God the Son blesses these children. Right? That's pretty good, right? God the Son blesses these children. And within that, we see the first kingdom lesson that's important for us to understand. And it is this. Jesus deeply values children being brought to him. Right? Jesus deeply values children being brought to him. If, if we're parents and followers of Jesus, the number one aim we have with our kids is to bring them to Jesus. It's to introduce them to Jesus, to teach them about Jesus. We don't bring them physically to Jesus in the same way they were here. But the number one aim in our parenting is to bring our kids to Jesus. That's the, the number one aim of our prayers is that they would know Jesus and we teach them again and again about who Jesus is and the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I say we teach them, please don't think of needing to be a parent at a whiteboard with a marker teaching your kids about Jesus. It isn't nearly that formal, is it? As parents, we teach our kids about Jesus by the way that we model relationship with Jesus. We teach our kids about Jesus by the way we interact with Jesus personally as we go through the things in our day. We teach our children about Jesus as we help them realize how the gospel intersects with all of the little things that they're going through in their daily lives. But we as Christian parents recognize Jesus values children being brought to him. And that's our desire. I, I'm so appreciative of all of the people right now who are upstairs and in the back working with kids from our congregation in order to help bring them to Jesus. As people are serving in the nursery or working with fourth and fifth graders, their primary aim isn't just to occupy them so they're not in here. Their primary aim is to give them age-appropriate lessons about who Jesus is and how Jesus wants to save them from their sins. And so right now, 
the primary aim of what is going on is to help bring those children to Jesus. There is no more important way for us to use our resources as a church than to invest them in kids being brought to Jesus. And God's call is for all of us to be involved in that in some way, in some setting, to be involved in bringing children to Jesus. If you ever meet a church leader of any kind, anywhere, who believes themselves to be too important to be spending time with Jesus, run away from that person. Right? Because that is not what we see in Jesus. Jesus loves these children. He wants them brought to him, and he loves our children and wants our children brought into relationship with him. That's the first kingdom lesson that we see in this. Jesus begins to now use these little children and infants that are around him to teach the second kingdom lesson. He's taught the disciples how important they are, how important it is to bring those kids to him. But now he wants to use these little children all around them in order to teach them a valuable lesson about being in the kingdom. He wants them to see that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, those who are like these children, and that the kingdom must be received like a child. When he says like a child, he means in a childlike way, right? Matthew 18, Luke 19 talk about needing to be like a child to be a part of the kingdom. Now, I want you to think about what age kids we're talking about right here. These are infants that Jesus is holding, toddlers that Jesus is holding. He says, no, people need to become like this, receive the kingdom like this, if they're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. What is he talking about? I was in the grocery store this last week, and while I was going up and down the aisles, my attention was drawn to this toddler who was throwing the most royal of fits in the checkout line. I mean, there was arching of backs and punching and kicking, screaming, and all I could think was, it is so good that this kid is little, right? Because if he was bigger, people would die right now. I mean, the amount of violence and anger that is going on in this tantrum about being stuck in that cart, it was unbelievable. And as I looked at that, and as I thought about this message, I thought, is that what Jesus is talking about? Right? We need to become more like that in order to receive the kingdom? Sloppy, fussy, angry? Right? If so, I've got a head start. That's great. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. What does Jesus mean when he says we've got to become like kiddos, like these little ones? I think he's talking about the humble dependence that is required if you are an infant or, or a little toddler. An infant can't do anything for themselves, and they recognize it, and they are totally unashamed of asking for help. A little toddler regularly has to ask for help. They can't make it through life without help. And when Jesus says, you've got to receive the kingdom like one of these little ones, the kingdom belongs to ones like them, he's saying it belongs to those who are humbly dependent. Infants... Little children, they cry out to mom for food. Why? Why doesn't an infant just take care of the problem themselves? Stop being such a baby. Come on. Right? Because they're dependent, completely dependent. Why does the one-year-old call out 
for help out of the crib? Why don't they just solve the problem themselves? Because little children are dependent. They are humble and dependent, and they come to you, and they ask for help. I remember the first time that my little, little daughter got shoes that needed to be tied. She came to me with those shoes, and she asked me if I would help tie them for her. And I'll tell you what, I didn't say, come on, solve this problem yourself. Right? No, I sat with my little daughter, and I tied her shoes for her. And I tied them again, and I tied them again, over and over again. And, and soon, as she grew up, we began to work on tying them together. Right? And now, at age 24, she's almost got it. Right? She's almost there, you guys. Right? I hope one of you who is her friend will pass on that I'm making fun of her behind her back. Kids, little children, are dependent. As an adult, if I didn't know how to tie my shoes, I might not be willing to ask for help. I might sit there in the chair and try over and over again to tie my shoes until I got frustrated enough that I couldn't do it, that I threw a shoe across the room. That is how most of my home repair projects go. Because right? as adults, we struggle to be dependent upon others. And Jesus says the kingdom is for those who are ready to recognize they can't tie their own spiritual shoes. Who are ready to come before me and say, I can't do it. I don't have the ability. I'm a mess. I'm a sinful disaster. My only hope, Jesus, is in you. And to completely, humbly depend upon him. Jesus says the kingdom is for those who receive it like a child. Those who are, are humble and dependent. Have you cried out to Jesus like a little child? Jesus, I can't do it. I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I'm totally and completely dependent upon you. The kingdom is for the dependent. Right? The kingdom is for the dependent. Now, as Jesus continues to bless these kids and take them in his arms, uh, finally he is done with all of the children that are brought to, them, brought to him. And he begins to move on. And as he moves on, he encounters someone who is totally different than these little children. He encounters someone who's often referred to as the rich young ruler. And we see him in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke's gospel says he was a ruler. Matthew's gospel says he was young. Mark's gospel is going to say in a couple of verses that he was rich. And so he's often referred to as the rich young ruler. And he runs up and he throws himself before Jesus and he has a question. How do I get into the kingdom? How do I inherit eternal life, Jesus? And I think this is a genuine question. From Sometimes Jesus gets asked questions and they're not genuine, right? People are trying to trick Jesus or, or show Jesus up. with the, No, I think this man is genuine. And I say that because he runs to Jesus and he falls on his knees before Jesus. Running and falling on your knees, these were not things that dignified men did within this Jewish society. And this guy says, I don't, I don't care about my social standing. i got to know the answer to this question. He runs to Jesus. He throws himself down before Jesus. And he says, oh, good teacher, give me the answer. How do I inherit eternal life? 
Now, Jesus isn't going to answer his question. He's going to ask him a question about his question. Uh, Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is Jesus here denying that he's God or that he's good? No, the entire gospel of Mark is dedicated to this one great point that Jesus is God and that he is good. And so what is Jesus trying to do by asking this question of the man about, doesn't he know that only God is good? I think he's trying to call the man's attention to something that he may have said flippantly, maybe even as flattery towards Jesus. And he says, do you really believe this? Because the Old Testament teaches again and again that there is no person who is good. As Romans 3, Romans 3 repeats from the Old Testament, there is no one righteous. What's next? No, not one. Only God is good. Jesus says, is, is that what you're saying here? Jesus needs him to understand the implications of calling him good. Is he God? Does he believe that? Because what Jesus is about to command of him, if it comes from some nice rabbi, can be ignored. But if it comes from God in the flesh, it absolutely cannot. And so Jesus continues with the man. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All these I have kept from my youth. Jesus reminds the man of the commandments. Which commandments? Jesus gives the man commandments 5 through 10 of the 10 commandments. And then he switches the wording on commandment 10. Right? Did, did you notice, do not defraud? Do you remember that one in the 10 commandments? No, in the 10 commandments in Exodus, it's do not covet. And Jesus has changed that language to defraud here. Why has Jesus changed the language of of commandment 10 and only given him commandments 5 through 10? I think it's because Jesus wants this man to be able to say, I've done all of this. I've done it. As we're going to see, the primary barrier in this man's life is that he has made his wealth an idol. And so Jesus changes the commandment for this man who is tied up in possessions about coveting because he'd probably coveted at some point. Jesus doesn't give him the first commandments about idolatry or about having anything before the Lord God because this man absolutely had put an idol before God in his life. And so Jesus gives him only the commandments that on the surface he could probably answer in the affirmative. Yep, I've never committed adultery, I've never lied, I've never stolen. Yep, yep, yep. But he doesn't give him the commandments that he's broken so that he can say, yes, I have done all of these things because now Jesus is going to hit him with the hammer of the first commandment about putting something else ahead of God because that is precisely what the man has done. And Jesus looking at him What does it say next? Loved him. I want you to recognize the words that we're about to see from Jesus are motivated by his love for this man. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
Jesus loved this man enough to tell him what he needed to know rather than what he wanted to know in this situation. And what he needed to know was that he still lacked one thing. And what was that one thing that this man lacked? The one thing that this man lacked was putting Jesus at the top as the priority in his life. That's what he lacked. He didn't have Jesus as the priority in his life. And here we see kingdom lesson number three. The kingdom is for those who make Jesus the priority. The man's possessions were more valuable to him than Jesus. Jesus called him to go ahead and sell all of the vast possessions he had and then come and follow after him like the rest of Jesus' disciples. Now, did Jesus' disciples that were following him over the course of three years, uh, did, did they ever starve to death and die as they went around? No, they had all of their needs met. One day, God would meet their needs, and then they would trust him that he would meet their needs the next day. And so they had Jesus, and all of their needs met. But this guy didn't want Jesus and his needs met. This guy wanted Jesus plus his abundance that he had accumulated. And so when it came time, Jesus gave him an option. Uh, am I more valuable or is the abundance you've accumulated more valuable? Which is it going to be? And the man chose not to follow Jesus because of his wealth. Because Jesus wasn't the priority, he didn't enter into the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is for those who have the king as the priority. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. The king is the priority. Nothing else takes its place. For this man, it was his possessions that got in the way of Jesus being the priority. For others, it might be people-pleasing. For others, it might be power and the ability to get your way. For others, it might be family that is the primary thing that is taking Jesus' place as the priority in life. But, but we see here from Jesus, no, the kingdom is for those who make Jesus the priority. The man went away discouraged. And at this point, Jesus is going to use this situation that has gone on to teach his disciples another lesson about the kingdom. Look at their interaction. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The disciples had a perspective that was common at their time. And that perspective was, wealth was a blessing from God because of your righteous living. It, wealth was a blessing from God because of your righteous living. And so, of course, you were a part of the kingdom of God. Your wealth showed you were living a righteous life. The disciples understood that, and so when Jesus says that's not true, they're like, who can possibly be saved then? If those who have this marker of righteousness, that they're a part of the kingdom of God, can't be saved, then who can possibly be saved? And Jesus wants them to understand this very important kingdom point. And that point is this. Wealth isn't a sign 
that a person is in the kingdom of God, wealth is actually a barrier to being in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus wants them to understand here. Kingdom lesson number four, wealth is a barrier to the kingdom and must be fully submitted to Jesus' rule. A barrier to the kingdom must be fully submitted to Jesus' rule. The, kingdom's, the, the disciples' thinking is, wealth is a sign that you're righteous and that you're in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you guys are thinking about this all wrong. The more you have, the more you have a barrier to me being the king in your life and to being a part of the kingdom of God. Because riches compete for our heart with Jesus. They're not the only thing. But God says it again and again. Wealth and possessions compete for our heart with Jesus for that place of priority. If you've ever had any possessions of your own, then you recognize the more we own, the more what we own owns us. Right? You recognize that in your life? You ever bought a new piece of furniture and then put 700 rules in place about how it could be treated because it now owns you? Right? The more we own, the more what we own owes us. Own owns us. Second, the more we invest in something, the more our heart is connected to it. Right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The more we invest in the things of this world, the more connected we are to them. You don't have any money in the stock market? You don't pay any attention to it. You don't care if it goes up or down. Whatever. You got a bunch of money in the stock market? All of a sudden, you're watching it regularly. How's it doing? What's going on? What about my fund? Right? Because where we invest, all of a sudden, our heart cares. Not only that, the more we use money and possessions to make this life comfortable the less we long for the pleasures of the next life. The more we use money and possessions to make this life comfortable, the less we long for the pleasures God promises us in the next life. When do I really want to go to Florida when it's nice and warm? Right? Do, I, do I want to go to Florida where it's warm in January when it's minus 15? Or do I want to go to Florida where it's warm in June when it's 79 degrees and beautiful outside. I want to go in January when it's minus 15, right? Because my longing for that better place, that warmer place is increased by the challenges that we are facing in minus 15 degrees. And the harder we work to use money and possessions to make our existence more comfortable in this life, the more we damage the natural longing that God has built into the challenge and suffering we're to face in this life, which is to constantly push us towards the great kingdom pleasures that he has for us there. Riches compete for our heart. Can you imagine a camel going through the eye of a needle? This is a hard teaching. The camel was the largest animal in Israel. I have the needle small enough that many of us who are clumsy can't get thread through it. How is a camel going to get through the eye of a needle? Jesus is intentionally using this hard and challenging language in order to confront their cultural understandings that wealth is a sign of righteousness. In fact, he is saying it's a barrier, people. It is a difficult barrier to overcome. 
And so we use it, two weeks ago, we saw this kind of exaggerated language, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. Jesus goes back to that and says, yeah, a camel through the eye of a needle. This is a difficult enough teaching that some have tried to soften it over the years. So in the 11th century, we see in the writings of a Byzantine monk, the introduction of this idea that in Jesus' day, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that you needed to strip down a camel in order to get through the eye of a needle. Some of you may have heard that explanation before, but it does not appear before the 11th century in the writings of these Byzantine monks, and there is no evidence that there was a, a gate called that in Jerusalem. What is going on? People are taking a hard teaching of Jesus, and they are trying to soften it in some way. Jesus wants this teaching to be hard. He wants us to grapple with this. It is so hard for those who accumulate possessions and money to enter into the kingdom and be a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, with people it's impossible, but with God, what? Everything is possible. I love the fact that in the Gospel of Luke, this account about this rich young ruler is set in back-to-back chapters with the account of a man named Zacchaeus, a rich man, who came into the kingdom of God. And so in Luke's gospel, we read about this man who will not give up his wealth in order to follow after Jesus. And a chapter later, we read about Zacchaeus, a man whose entire life had been dedicated to the accumulation of wealth and possessions. He was a chief tax collector. The only reason a person would become a chief tax collector is so that you could get rich. To the Jews, they understood tax collectors and chief tax collectors worst of all to be those who had betrayed their, their Jewish brothers and sisters in order to collect money for those who were oppressing them, Rome. They understood a chief tax collector to be one who was the worst of sinners. As a matter of fact, when Jesus says he's going to go to his home, everyone's like, what are you doing, Jesus? Everyone knows better than to go to the home of a chief tax collector. And yet, for some reason that is not explained to us, Zacchaeus has a desire to see Jesus. And when Jesus tells Zacchaeus he's going to his house, Zacchaeus says, yes, let's let's go. And there Zacchaeus repents. There Zacchaeus bows his life before Jesus as king. And what does Jesus declare over Zacchaeus that day? Today salvation has come to this house. That day... A camel went through the eye of a needle. Impossible? Not for God. Even the wealthy can come into the kingdom through the work of God. Even the Zacchaeuses of the world, whose entire life was dedicated to wealth, can come into the kingdom by the power and the work of God. And what do we see from Zacchaeus? We see a complete transformation in how he pictures the things that he owns. He had been accumulating for himself, even stealing from people for himself, he says. And then when he bows his life before King Jesus, what becomes clear is his, his possessions no longer rule over him. Jesus rules over him, and now Jesus rules over his possessions. Isn't that how he immediately treats his possessions in that moment? Whatever way Jesus calls me to, whatever will help the kingdom and others most, So he's immediately dedicated to Jesus as ruler over his life. And all that he owns is fully submitted 
to Jesus' rule. I was uh, talking to a young man this last week who said to me, uh, Pastor Matt, I got to talk to you about something. I booked a vacation this last week. And uh, there's nothing right or wrong about the vacation, but I didn't pray about it. Like it's, a, it's a significant vacation, and I thought it was a good deal, so I did it. I, di- I didn't pray about it at all. And he said, that's not the way I want to operate. These are God's resources. I want to be in conversation with him about how we're going to spend his resources. And so as we talked a little bit, I just affirmed, yes, these are his resources. And we want to be constantly in conversation about how the king wants us to use his kingdom resources. May may this young man's tribe be multiplied a thousand times. May may it be multiplied in my heart. Uh, Ultimately, these, these resources are his. We want them all to be under the rule of King Jesus. The final lessons that we see about the kingdom here come from an after conversation that Jesus and Peter are going to have together. It starts with Peter saying to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold when? Now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I think we can praise God deeply for the kingdom truths we see in this interaction between Peter and Jesus. And the first is this. In the kingdom, we are family. The kingdom is about being family. Peter asked a question we'd expect of Peter. Okay, so the wealth have a barrier. Jesus, we've given it all up. We got to be in pretty good standing here. And and you notice it says Peter began to ask Jesus. I think Jesus cut him off. He's like, all right, before you get in too much trouble here, Peter, let me go ahead and cut you off and tell you how things are. And then Jesus goes on to say, anyone who has left family or home for my sake is going to experience a hundredfold of that in this time, in this life. What? What is Jesus talking about here? If through faithfulness to Jesus and his call, I lose family, relationships, home, how am I going to receive a hundredfold on that? As far as we know, Peter was in prison for a chunk of his time late in his life and crucified upside down. Is that the hundredfold? What? What is Peter talking about here? I think that it is clear that he is talking about the church. Again and again, Jesus says, you may lose family for following after me. You may lose homes for following after me. But what you are going to gain in being a part of my body is far greater than that. There is a better and greater family that I am calling you to be a part of. Again and again, Jesus affirms this idea of a better and greater family among his followers so that when his mother and his brothers come to him, he says, that's not my mom and my brothers. My family is anyone who does the will of my father. 
right? The real and true family. Not, that, that's not the people I grew up with. My real and true family are those that I've chosen to join as family, as a part of the kingdom of God. That is our genuine family. And, and yes, there may be times where brothers, sisters, parents, children say, I, I can't follow you down this road with Jesus. Right? Our relationship is over. But we inherit brothers and sisters and parents and children as a part of the body of Christ a hundredfold with a deeper and more united connection through Christ than there can ever be simply by growing up together. Jesus says you'll inherit a hundredfold when it comes to homes. One of the reasons that hospitality is so thoroughly taught throughout the New Testament is there's a recognition. People are going to be hurting. They're, they're going to lose homes in the midst of all of this for my name's sake sometimes. And so you need to take them into your homes. Hospitality is what my body is to be all about. You are to have shared homes. In Acts 2 and Acts 4, there was a recognition. No one would possibly own two pieces of property if someone was in need. Of course they would sell one of those pieces of property to give it to those who are in need because we're meant to be a big family caring for each other, all as one together. If there's a challenge to us recognizing that it is the church that Jesus is talking about here, it is only because the enemy has thoroughly filled our hearts and minds in America with the idea that church is about an hour and 20 minutes on Sunday morning and interacting with what goes on a stage. When in fact, what, what Jesus teaches again and again, what the New Testament teaches again and again is, no, the church is about family. It's about daily meetings with each other to encourage each other and strengthen each other. It's about the constant bond of caring for each other that we're to have. Oh, what, what beauty there is in this. The kingdom is family. We are a big, united family seeking to care for each other in all things. We also see in this passage the beauty that those in the kingdom are persecuted. Anyone notice how Jesus kind of dropped that in there? There are all of these blessings, a hundredfold brothers, sisters, and homes. Oh yeah, and, and persecutions. I think he does that because the persecutions are a blessing. Jesus says, if you're going to follow after me, there will be tribulations. He says, if they hated me and persecuted me, then they're going to hate you, my followers, and persecute you. There will be persecutions. And they are such a great blessing. They never feel like it at the time. But James 1, Romans 5, teaches us that these kinds of tribulations can be the trials that God uses in order to strengthen us. And to make us mature in him. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, when you experience these kinds of tribulations for his name's sake, that you should rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. There's heavenly reward for those who go through those persecutions. And, and there's a recognition, as we sang earlier, those who suffer with Christ, they recognize, I'm in Christ, I'm with Christ, and so I will be raised with him as well. Those sufferings are guarantees of our future with him. Oh, praise God for the persecutions and the blessings that they are in our life. And finally, praise God that those in the kingdom have eternal life. Praise God that those in the kingdom have eternal life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that if you are in Christ Jesus, you have an eternal inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept where? Kept in heaven for you.
your great reward is kept in heaven for you. And there is an eternal life that is ours that we have to constantly be focusing on, constantly seeing, or else we get short-sighted and we lose our focus and we lose our hope because our focus and our hope are only right if we see the eternity that God has for us and all that he is calling us to. Oh, those in the kingdom have the blessing of eternal life. As you look at these seven different kingdom lessons, I want you to recognize that Jesus says, oh, there's going to be first who are last and last who are first. And I want you to think about the characters he's been interacting with. Uh, this rich young man who seemed to have everything together could say, yep, the commandments, I've kept them. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. Jesus saw this man walk away not a part of the kingdom. He says, no, no, the kingdom is for those who are like little infants who will come to me and recognize they have no standing and no ability and that they must depend completely and totally on me. Would you guys bow your heads with me and I'd ask you to just think through these questions as we prepare to go to the Lord's table today. The first one is this, are you a part of the kingdom of God? Have you put away pride and a sense of self-rule and entered into the king, kingdom under the king's rule? Recognizing that can only happen through what he has done? Have you declared Jesus is Lord in your life? Sometimes that's done through baptism that we talked about earlier in the service? Have you ever declared, I am fully submitted to Jesus in everything in my life? In the kingdom, is there any area where you need to give away everything in order to make sure it is clear that Jesus is the priority? Anything that you need to do away with, anything you need to get rid of so that it's clear, Jesus, you're the priority in my life. Is God calling you to deeper devotion with the family of God? Have you been dabbling with the family of God and recognized Jesus calls us to be a family? There's no dabbling in family. I, I need to be all in in the way that I am relating. How we focus more intensely and intently on the eternal life that is yours in Christ so that you can have proper focus and God's great hope, the great joy that comes with recognizing what he has called us to beyond this life. As we take the elements at the table today, it is a declaration today as it is every day that we are dependent, uh, that we can't do it on our own. There was no way that we could save ourselves, that we needed the work of Jesus Christ the bread and the cup representing his great sacrifice on our behalf, in our place, so that we could be saved and that he is our only hope. That, that we are infants, unable to tie our own shoes, and that ultimately he is the one who has to tie our spiritual shoes. It's the only way that it can happen. I'd invite you to continue to remember our complete and total dependence upon him as we take these elements together as we continue to worship him, let's spend time worshiping and praising the Lord together.